0: Can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before
1: Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. you find all those back episodes. You'll also find a link to Send Me a Message and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free. And independent. You can also follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. The apartheid regime in Israel continues to inflict its dominance across the Palestinian territories with some egregious abuses hitting the news recently. Of course, the Western news downplays and uses. Uh, language to hide the reality of what's happening on the ground. For example, when Israeli forces invade areas and attack protesters, the Western media invariably calls these actions clashes, as if there are relatively equal forces with relatively equal culpability for the actions um, when Shireen Abu Akleh was murdered by the Israeli defense forces, something that is still a bit in dispute but is very, very significant evidence that it was the Israeli defense forces that shot Abu Akleh in the head Some Western media reported in their headlines that she simply died. Others say that she died when she was hit with a bullet. Softening the reality of what appears pretty clearly to be a targeted murder. First up is a piece from Al Jazeera staff. Shireen Abu Akleh was a reporter for Al Jazeera when she was murdered. Shireen Abu Akleh, a Palestinian Al Jazeera journalist killed by Israeli forces on Wednesday, was a veteran television correspondent who became a household name across the Arab world for her bold coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A native of Jerusalem and a citizen of the United States, Abu Aklay, aged 51, is survived by her brother, Tony Abu Aklay. Friends and colleagues described Abu Aklay as a brave and kind reporter with an infectious laugh who gave a voice to the struggles of Palestinians over a career spanning nearly three decades. Our loss is so huge," said Nida Ibrahim an Al Jazeera correspondent and colleague of Abu Clays in the occupied West Bank. She was kind, dedicated, and devoted. She knew the story through and through, and she understood the nuances. She brought a wealth of information to her reporting. Speaking through tears, Ibrahim described Abu Clay as a unique human being who was very well-known but modest and committed to her profession. At the time of her death, Abu Aklay had been learning Hebrew in order to understand Israeli media narratives better and had just finished a diploma in digital media, Abraham said. She's not only someone who was a veteran who's been here covering the story for years, but also someone who is eager to keep learning and keep reporting using new means. Born in Jerusalem in 1971, Abu Aklay, who was a Christian, initially studied architecture before switching to journalism at Yarmouk University in Jordan. After graduating, she returned to Palestine and worked for several media outlets, including Voice of Palestine Radio and the Amman Satellite Channel. She joined Al Jazeera Media Network a year after it was launched in 1996 as one of the Qatar-based Arabic Language Network's first field correspondents and gained fame for her coverage of the Second Palestinian Intifada in 2000. I chose journalism to be close to the people, Abu Akhle said in one video. It might not be easy to change the reality, but at least I could bring their voice to the world. As a television journalist, Abu Akhle covered events big and small from the Gaza Wars of 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, and 2021 to the daring jailbreak of six Palestinians who escaped a maximum security prison in northern Israel last September. She also covered regional news including the war in Lebanon in 2006. Shireen was a trailblazer and inspiration for us all, said Dalia Hatuka, an Al Jazeera journalist who is a close friend of Abu Akleh. Her presence became synonymous with Al Jazeera. During the height of the second intifada, Hatuka recalled Israeli soldiers going around the Palestinian city of Ramallah and mimicking her, shouting from a bullhorn her famous closing lines Shireen Abu Akley, Al Jazeera, Ramallah. To her friends, though, Abu Akley was far more than the face of Al Jazeera in Palestine. She had an infectious laugh. She loved to travel, see the world, shop, party, Hatuka said. She lost her mother and father when she was younger and saw so much cruelty in the world, especially in Palestine, but that never stopped her from appreciating and enjoying life. She added, quote, her voice was so beautiful even when she was telling heartbreaking stories. Abu Akleh was on assignment in the city of Janine in the occupied West Bank, covering Israeli raids on a refugee camp when she was killed. She was shot in the head while wearing a blue flak jacket clearly marked with the word press. In a statement, the Al Jazeera Media Network called Abu Akhle's killing a, quote, blatant murder and a heinous crime. The network accused Israeli Israeli forces of targeting the veteran journalist with live fire and assassinating her in cold blood. The Israeli army denied targeting journalists and has offered a joint investigation into Abu Clay's death amid a growing outcry. Tamar al-Meshal, who was working with Abu Clay at the time of her killing, called her a model for both Palestinian and Arab journalists. Till the very last second, she was professional and per- persevering in her work, he said. The last message Shireen Abu Clay sent to Al Jazeera was via email at 6.13am, which she wrote, Occupation forces Storm Janine and besiege a house in the Jabriat neighborhood. On the way there, I will bring you news as soon as the picture becomes clear. We and the viewers did not know that this news she sent would be the news of her martyrdom. And uh, not it being sufficient that they murder a member of the press, but during her funeral procession and her funeral, Israeli forces disrupted and attacked the funeral, attacked the procession uh, nearly, or perhaps actually, it's a little bit unclear in the video, made the people carrying Abu Akleh's coffin drop that coffin as they swept in with batons beating everyone in sight. Here's a piece by Ben Jamal. This is published at tribunemag.co.uk. This Sunday, May 16, 2022, Palestinians around the world will once again be marking the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing, of more than 750,000 Palestinians from their lands and homes that led to the establishment of the State of Israel, the destruction of over 500 Palestinians and villages that were wiped from the map of the new country. There is no Palestinian who does not have a story of what's happened to their family in 1948. Mine is my grandparents forced from their beautiful home in West Jerusalem which stands still now occupied by a Jewish family, and eventually to Beirut, where they died in exile. The Nakba is not a fossilized moment of historical trauma, but an unbroken catastrophe and ongoing settler colonialism that continues to displace the Palestinians who had managed to hold onto their lands and prevent those expelled from returning. The Nakba continued when, on May 4th, Israel's highest court ruled it legal in a contravention of the 4th Geneva Convention, for Israel to begin the expulsion of over 1,000 Palestinians from the village of Masafir Yata to make way for a military firing zone. Since 1970, Israel has declared up to 18% of the illegally occupied West Bank firing zones required for military exercises. One week later, as Palestinians marked the anniversary of Israel's 2021 bombardment of Gaza, Bulldozers moved into Mas- Masafir Yada, demolished buildings, and forcibly uprooted 45 people. Many of them are children. The same day, embarking on what Sarit Mekeli, the advocacy director for B'Tselem, Israel's leading human rights monitoring organization, called a demolition spree, Israel destroyed the family home of the Al-Rajabi family in Silwan and annexed East Jerusalem. IDF soldiers were filmed assaulting a child protesting the destruction. The al-Rajabi's home is one of more than 80 scheduled for demolition in Silwan, with at least 1,500 Palestinians facing state-enforced homelessness and dispossession. While the bulldozers entered Masafriata, IDF troops began their latest incursion into Janine, some 120 miles north inside the occupied West Bank before long footage emerged of the killing of prominent Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Numerous eyewitnesses' accounts testified to her having been shot in the head by an IDF sniper. Israel began to wield the usual Hasbara machinery, claiming footage showed Palestinian gunmen as the culprits, a claim quickly and forensically dismantled by B'Tselem field researchers. These are just the latest moments, images, and stories that have been stitched into the tapestry of the ongoing Nakba. It is a Nakba sustained by the complicity of governments, public bodies, companies, and corporations who continue to shield Israel from accountability and lend it material and diplomatic support. Forced to acknowledge the death of Shireen Abu Akleh by its prominence as a news story, Liz Truss tweeted her sadness at the death, as if Shireen had succumbed to a sudden illness. No outrage, no condemnation, no calls for an independent investigation. David Lammy, shadow foreign secretary, could not raise himself to a comment, but relied on a retweet of his junior bambos Sharalambus' expressions of shock. Further, as Israel rolled on throughout the week with its incursions, demolitions, and killings of Palestinians, UK government confirmed its intention to bring in the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions bill specifically designed to ensure that while the government chooses not to hold Israel to account though, through sanctions, public bodies cannot make their own decisions not to invest in companies complicit in Israel's violations of international law and human rights. Israel's strategy over the 74 years since it first imposed its system of apartheid upon Palestinians has been to crush Palestinian resistance through persistent violence and to attempt to cut off the necessary oxygen of support from a global solidarity movement by demonizing that movement. This is done by attempting to toxify the cause of the Palestinian liberation so that it becomes separated from broader progressive causes. Ben-Gurion once reportedly condensed the strategy as, quote, the old will die and the young will forget. But the strategy is failing. The Palestinian Nakba story is not simply one of collective and ongoing trauma, but of resistance, endurance, and a refusal to submit. It is a spirit manifested this week by Yara al-Rajabi, the 10-year-old daughter of the Silwan family, who, having seen her home destroyed, spoke boldly to camera her family's refusal to ever be driven from Jerusalem. It is the spirit manifested by the cohort of Palestinians, including some as young as 14, who will lead the Nakba march we are holding in London on Saturday, 14 May, carrying keys, the symbol of Palestinian refusal to give up on their inalienable right to return to the homes from which they were driven, in 1948 while political leaders continue to shield israel and take action to suppress movements of solidarity civil society is becoming bolder in its calling out of the injustice of apartheid and the need for accountability actions to address it more than 50 civil society groups faith groups and trade unions have signed a statement in opposition to the boycott divestment and sanctions bill they have done so from a foundation of a recognition of the legitimate place of boycott as a tool to hold abusive institutions and states to account and a refusal to accept the narrative that this is uniquely racist when applied to Israel. At the end of Saturday's march, the Palestinian-led marchers will gather on stage to hold aloft their keys, while the words of Remi Kanazi's poem Nakba are read aloud. It is a poem that tells a traumatic story of his grandmother's expulsion from her home in 1948 and her death in exile. It is a poem of resistance. It ends with these words. We have not forgotten. We will not forget veins like roots of olive trees. We will return. That is not a threat, not a wish, a hope or a dream, but a promise. Next up is a piece from CommonDreams.org. This is written by Michael Waldman. On Monday night, a draft majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was leaked. If Justice Samuel Alito's opinion is adopted, it will overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It is radical in its implications. The draft majority opinion explicitly repeals a major constitutional right one protected for half a century, on the grounds that, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. At the front of our minds must be the impact on the lives of millions of women. Beyond that, what would this mean for our political and judicial systems? Stipulate that it is just a draft, as Chief Justice John Roberts said today. Votes can change. Assume, though, that it's close to what the court will release by the end of the term. This ruling would usher in a dark and dangerous new constitutional order for as long as nearly all Americans have been alive we have had a uniform system of rights protected nationally by the constitution the us supreme court and laws passed by congress and i do have to pause for an aside here we may ha- we may all be under the same laws and quote unquote rights put down on paper or in pixels Somewhere, But that does not remotely mean that there is any semblance of fairness in the way that those laws are applied and to whom they are applied. Now the Supreme Court is busily revoking those national protections on voting rights, soon apparently on abortion rights. The draft implies marriage equality, LGBTQ equality, and even contraception Could be next. 26 states are certain or likely to ban some or all abortions as soon as Roe is overturned. Of those, 13 have trigger laws, which would go into effect right after the court rules. Many of the same states that have passed voting restrictions are assailing LGBTQ rights. Conservative states would have one social order, the rest of the country another. The draft raises once again the place of the Supreme Court in our political system and shows just how out of balance that system is. The court's legitimacy is a fragile thing, given that we have given so much power to lifetime appointed judges. Now those judges seem eager to use that authority to entrench minority power. Democrats won seven of the last eight popular votes for the presidency, the longest such winning streak in American history. Yet Republican presidents picked six of the nine justices. Justice Neil Gorsuch gets to cast this deciding vote only because Senator Mitch McConnell refused to allow a vote for the first time in a century, at least, on a Supreme Court nomination, holding the seat open for a year. The justices, each the product of a 40 year conservative legal movement centered on judicial nominations, testified that Roe was, quote, settled law, as Alito and Justice Brett Kavanaugh put it. Gorsuch asserted it, quote, is a precedent. It has been reaffirmed. Justice Clarence Thomas claimed under oath never to have discussed it or had an opinion on Roe when it was decided, even though he was at Yale Law School in 1973. No relevant facts have changed. No new ethical or medical or social science data has created new understandings. Public support for abortion rights is unchanged. All that changed was the personnel of the court. Major rulings often shift politics and can create backlash. That has happened after Dred Scott reestablished in 1857 that Congress could not bar slavery from territories, a ruling that helped sweep Republican Abraham Lincoln into the White House and thus precipitated the Civil War. It happened after Brown versus Board of Education, which led to, quote, massive resistance by Southern segregationists, although that decision also inspired civil rights activists. And it certainly happened after Roe itself, which helped spur overtly political organizing by opponents that helped shape the political alignment of the past half century. Conservative politicians have always seemed to have a cynical relationship with their anti abortion base. Conservative justices have dominated the court for decades, yet were somehow always one vote shy of issuing the long hoped for ruling. Well, the Supreme Court majority and the extremist politicians in many states seem to have finally reached their goal. They may reap the political whirlwind. That kind of backlash is far from automatic. When Texas effectively banned abortion last year and the Supreme Court let it do so without a majority ruling, headlines lasted only a few days. The reaction to this draft opinion suggests something is very different. The Supreme Court won't protect our rights, that is up to all of us at the ballot box, in legislatures, and on the streets. And that last part, at least, is something that Howard Zinn largely agrees with. I have another podcast called People Are Revolting. It's a daily story about people out there protesting, fighting, and uh, engaging in the struggle for a better world. And a recent episode, I covered a Howard Zinn essay called Don't Despair About the Supreme Court, in which I covered some excerpts of that related specifically to this recent opinion, draft opinion, and the response to it and the necessity throughout history of the people to rise and guide our institutions and guide our courts and guide our politicians into the right decisions if you want the sign that humanity's still got it going on People are revolting. Welcome to People Are Revolting, a daily dose of disobedience. Back in 2005, Howard Zinn, wrote a piece about the Supreme Court. It was published in the Progressive Magazine. I'm reading from a piece republished at popularresistance.org. Here's a couple of excerpts from this piece by Howard Zinn, titled, Don't Despair About the Supreme Court. John Roberts sailed through his confirmation hearings as a new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court with enthusiastic Republican support, and a few weak mutterings of opposition by the Democrats. Then, after the far-right deemed Harriet Myers insufficiently doctrinaire, Bush nominated arch-conservative Samuel Alito to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. This has caused a certain consternation among people we affectionately term the left. I can understand that sinking feeling, Even listening to pieces of Robert's confirmation hearings was enough to induce despair. The joking with the candidate, the obvious signs that, whether Democrats or Republicans, these are all members of the same exclusive club. Robert's proper, quote, credentials, his nice-guy demeanor, his insistence to the Judiciary Committee that he is not an ideologue. Can you imagine anyone, even Robert Bork or Dick Cheney, admitting that he is an ideologue? Were clearly more important than his views on equality, justice, the rights of defendants, the war powers of the president. The distinction between law and justice is ignored by all those senators, Democrats, and Republicans who solemnly invoke as their highest concern, quote, the rule of law. The law can be just. It can be unjust. It does not deserve to inherit the ultimate authority of the divine right of the king. The Constitution gave no rights to working people, no right to work less than 12 hours a day, no right to a living wage, no right to safe working conditions. Workers had to organize, go on strike, defy the law, the courts, the police, create a great movement which won the eight-hour day and caused such commotion. that Congress was forced to pass a minimum wage law and Social Security, and unemployment insurance. The right of a woman to an abortion did not depend on the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. It was won before that decision, all over the country, by grassroots agitation, that forced states to recognize the right. If the American people, who by a great majority favor that right, insist on it, act on it, No Supreme Court decision can take it away. It would be naive to depend on the Supreme Court to defend the rights of poor people, women, people of color, dissenters of all kinds. Those rights only come alive when citizens organize, protest, demonstrate, strike, boycott, rebel, and violate the law in order to uphold justice. So now in 2022, when a leaked draft majority decision is showing that the Supreme Court is about to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, it comes back to the people, the people who have been fighting nonstop before and during the time when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, and the people who had stopped fighting when Roe v. Wade was won at the Supreme Court, need to continue to fight or join the fight. And it appears they are in large numbers. The next few episodes are going to cover the large number of protests erupting spontaneously and organized All over the country in the light of the leaked draft decision and the Democrats will see if the Democrats really stand for anything the Democrats repeatedly in the past and now have promised to pass legislation to make access to abortion illegal everywhere the Democrats have proven over and over and over again that what they say that they stand for are typically not things they're willing to fight for. I'm afraid that will be the same in this case. They will only do so. They will only fight for these things if they're forced to by the people, by direct action all over the country. Bravo to everyone who has tirelessly and endlessly fought for rights to abortion, and to all of those who are now joining the fight. Keep revolting, and thanks for listening. Humanity's still got it going on. The people are revolting.
0: I think you just nailed it.
1: And in his book, Voices from a People's History, Howard Zinn talks about our obedience and that being the center of a lot of our problems and our topic is topsy-turvy civil disobedience as soon as you say the topic is civil disobedience you are saying our problem is civil disobedience that is not our problem our problem is civil obedience Our problem is the numbers of people all over the world who have obeyed the dictates of the leaders of their government and have gone to war, and millions have been killed because of this obedience. And our problem is that scene in All Quiet on the Western Front where the schoolboys march off dutifully in a line to war. Our problem is that people are obedient all over the world in the face of poverty and starvation and stupidity and war and cruelty. Our problem is that people are obedient while the jails are full of petty thieves, and all the while, the grand thieves are running the country. That's our problem. We recognize this for Nazi Germany. We know that the problem there was obedience, that the people obeyed Hitler. People obeyed. That was wrong. They should have challenged, and they should have resisted. And if we were only there, we would have showed them. Even in Stalin's Russia, we can understand that. People are obedient. All these herd-like people. Uh, But America is different. That is what we've all been brought up on from the time we were this high, and I still hear it resounding in Mr. Frankel's statement. You tick off one, two, three, four, five lovely things about America that we don't want disturbed very much. But if we've learned anything in the past ten years, is that these lovely things about America were never lovely. We have been expansionist and aggressive and mean to other people from the beginning. And we've been aggressive and mean to people in this country. And we've allocated the wealth of this country in a very unjust way. We've never had justice in the courts for the poor people, for black people, for radicals. Now, how can we boast that America is a very special place? It is not that special. It really isn't. And there's a lot of hand-wringing out there about uh, protests in front of judges' houses. Oh, the clutching of the pearls and the cries to, oh, just be civil. You must be civilized. This isn't nice. Why can't you protest and resist in a nice way, in a pleasant way, in a civil way? Well, Melvina Reynolds uh, stabbed that uh, opinion with a sharp blade back when she wrote the song It isn't nice, which leads off. It isn't nice to block the doorways. It isn't nice to go to jail. There are nicer ways to do it. But the nice ways always fail. We can't afford to be nice and to be civil all of the time. There are plenty of times and places where civility is the best tactic, the proper tactic. But that's not All of the times and all of the places and all of the circumstances when you're struggling for issues that for some literally are life and death, then you, you can't afford to be timid and afford to be always civil or always nice. Here's a piece published at prismreports.org. This is written by Tina Vazquez. When I read the leaked draft Supreme Court decision that would strike down Roe v. Wade, I was transported back in time to when I was a teenager in southeast Los Angeles, terrified for my life. When I was 19 and pregnant, I would lay in bed at night, stare at the ceiling, and pray to God that I could get an abortion or find the courage to take my own life. It wasn't shame or stigma that made me want to die. It was the idea of having a child I did not want to have. At the time, I was a college student in an abusive relationship with someone who was was substance dependent. I saved the money intended for my abortion in the pages of a book, but my partner would take the funds and use them to buy drugs. Every day that ticked by was excruciating. Even at 37 and after many years of reflection, I still cannot articulate the agony and terror I felt every hour that I was pregnant and did not want to be. It's a unique kind of violence, and at no other time in my life have I felt as powerless or disconnected from my body. The only thing that really stood between me and the future I wanted for myself was money, but as it turned out, money was the hardest thing to come by. I did not know abortion funds existed, and as a poor Latina in a deeply repressive and abusive home, there were few places I knew to turn to. At the time, I did not have the kind of relationship with my parents that would have made it safe to ask them for help. I'm certain my father would have beaten me and forced me to become a parent. But I also knew my parents didn't have a dollar to spare. There were times they literally could not keep the lights on, times when lunch was a mustard and onion sandwich. Asking them for money was a useless endeavor that would have put my safety at risk. Everything was a calculation. How do I survive today? How much time do I have? How much money do I need? Who can I beg, borrow, or steal from? I did all of the above, but ultimately what allowed me to pay for my abortion— was a lie I told my partner's mom about being unable to afford textbooks for my community college classes. She gave me a few hundred dollars in cash, which allowed me to terminate the pregnancy she would otherwise have tried to coerce me to continue. You're not supposed to say this, but I had no complicated feelings about accessing abortion care, even having grown up in a traditional home with heavy Catholic overtones and a machista father. After my abortion, I felt nothing but relief and elation. I felt free. There is nothing more holy in the world than choosing if, when, or how you create a family, which is why abortion is one of our most sacred rights. I am certain that I have a life I could have only dreamed of as a young person, one devoted to family, community, and storytelling, because at 19, I was able to access abortion care, and that changed the course of my life. I know there are many people who have children under less than ideal circumstances and who go on to have full and fulfilling lives. I also know that would not have been possible for me, and I unapologetically choose myself. Every word I have written, every story I have told, every ounce of joy I have experienced is because I had the ability to shape my life in the way I wanted. As a journalist, I know we create the public record, and I want the record to show that abortion is freedom. Striking down the right to abortion will overwhelmingly impact low-income people of color and immigrants, people who already face insurmountable barriers accessing care, people who already have to travel out of state for care, people who already have to cross borders and border patrol checkpoints to access care, People for Her Roe was already a myth. The decades-long war against Roe was never just about controlling our reproduction. If you do not get to decide if and when you become a parent, you have lost control of your health, your finances, and your stability. You have lost control of your life. Not long before my mom died, she told me she never wanted children, but that she loved me. Every year on the anniversary of her death on May 3, I spend the day reflecting on her life, including how much of it was out of her control and how much she was robbed of. The circumstances of my mom's life shaped my own, and her unexpected death at the age of 49 set my life ablaze. I have forced myself to see our short relationship as a temporary gift, one that taught me our time here is truly limited, and it's worth fighting tooth and nail to make the most of it. If I could talk to my mom today, I think she would be proud of me for having an abortion. In choosing the life I wanted, just as I understand that today's fight for abortion access is a fight for the lives of millions of people who deserve the right to bodily autonomy and the ability to live self determined lives. It's not hyperbole to say that access to abortion care is a matter of life and death, but this urgency is clearly not felt by elected officials or the courts. There is no telling what tomorrow or next week or next year will bring. But this I do know. We have kept each other safe. And we will keep each other free. And finally for this episode is a piece written by Caitlin Johnstone. Everyone is anti-war until the war propaganda starts. Nobody thinks of themselves as a warmonger, but then the spin machine gets going and before you know it, they're spouting the slogans they've been programmed to spout and waving the flags, the flags they've been programmed to wave, and consenting to whatever the imperial war machine wants in that moment. Virtually everyone will tell you they love peace and hate war when asked. War is the very worst thing in the world, and no healthy person relishes the thought of it. But when the rubber meets the road and it's time to oppose war and push for peace, those who'd previously proclaimed themselves, quote, anti-war, are on the other side, screaming for more weapons to be poured into a proxy war that their government deliberately provoked. This is because the theory of being anti-war is very different from the practice. In theory, people are just opposed to the idea of exploding other people for no good reason in practice, They're always hit with a very intense barrage of media messaging giving them what look like very good reasons why those people need exploding. Being truly anti-war isn't easy. It doesn't look like people picture in their imaginations. It looks like getting smashed with a deluge of information designed to manipulate and confuse and working through it while getting screamed at by those who've fallen for the brainwashing. It's not cute. It's not fun. It's not the feel-good flower power time that people intuit it is when they look at part of themselves that seek peace. It's standing up against the most sophisticated propaganda machine that has ever existed while being offered every reason not to. When people think of themselves as anti-war, they're usually imagining themselves as anti-another Iraq war or anti-some-theoretical-Hitler-like president starting a war because he likes killing people. They're not picturing the reality of what being anti-war actually is in practice. Because selling the war to the public is a built-in component of all war strategy, the war will always look necessary from the mainstream perspective, and it won't look like those other wars which we now know in retrospect were mistakes. It's always designed to look appealing. There's never not going to be atrocity propaganda. There's never not going to be reasons fed to you selling this military intervention as special and completely necessary. That will be the case every single time because that is how modern wars are packaged and presented. This is why you'll always see a number of self-described leftists and anti-imperialists cheering for the latest U.S. war project. They are ideologically opposed to the idea of war in theory, but the way it actually shows up in practice is always different from what they pictured. Our entire civilization is shaped by domestic propaganda, but the only time you ever hear that word in mainstream discourse is when it's used to discuss the comparatively almost non-existent influence of Russian propaganda on our society. All the mainstream alarm ringing about Russian propaganda gives the impression that it comprises close to 100% of the total propaganda that Westerners consume, when in reality, it is a tiny fraction of 1% of the total propaganda that Westerners consume. Almost all of it comes from Western sources. Propaganda is the single most overlooked and underappreciated aspect of our society. It has far more influence over how the public thinks, acts, and votes than any of our official mechanisms for doing so. Yet it's barely discussed, it isn't taught in schools, and even the best political ideologies barely touch on it relative to their other areas of focus. All the fretting about Russian propaganda from establishment narrative managers comes so close to giving away their secret that they know it's possible to manipulate the way the public thinks, acts, and votes using media. They just don't admit that they're the ones who are doing it. It's actually the weirdest thing in the world that there's something that has been directly affecting our minds our entire lives and which directly affects the way our entire society is organized. But we don't talk about it constantly. It should be at the front and center of our attention. But of course... That's the whole idea. Propaganda only works on those who don't know they're being propagandized. The U.S. centralized empire's ability to hide its propaganda machine is a foundational element of its brilliance. Being truly anti-war is necessarily a commitment to finding out not just what's true about all the war narratives currently promulgated by the imperial war machine, but all the narratives you've been fed about the world since you were young. It's a commitment to truth that takes on an almost spiritual quality in the way it informs every aspect of your life when truly espoused. It's important to research and learn new things about the world, but what's really important, and what doesn't get emphasized nearly enough, is a practice of examining the beliefs you already hold about your society, your government, your nation, and your world, inquiring as to whether they're really true and who might benefit from your believing in them. Don't make the error of assuming you'll always be aware and informed enough to spot all the lies right away. You're dealing with the single most advanced and powerful propaganda machine that has ever existed. And you've been marinating in its effects your entire life. It takes some time. Even the most aware among us were indoctrinated into the mainstream worldview to some extent earlier in their lives. And to this day, most of the information they get about the world has some of its roots in branches in parts of the propaganda matrix. It takes work to see things clearly enough to form a really truth-based worldview. But unless you do this, it's impossible to be truly anti-war because you can't skillfully oppose something you don't understand. To fight the imperial war machine is to fight the imperial propaganda machine and that'll bring us to the end of this episode remember you can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com you can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral and you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24 7 at MovingTrainMedia.com And now, a moment of zin. This is Remy Kanazi with the poem Nakba. Thanks for listening.
0: She was scared. Seven months pregnant. Guns pointed at temples. Tears dropping. Stomach cusp back bent. Dirt pathways leading to dispossession. Rocking boats, waves crashing, people rushing, falling over each other, packing into small spaces like memories. Her home, mandated, occupied, cleansed, conquered. Terrorizers sat on hills, sniping children, neighbors fled on April 10th. Word game of massacre. They stayed, didn't fight, didn't flee. Shells and bombs bursting in air like anthems, prayed for the dead with priests and imams, prayed for the living, looking over shoulders for the Ergon and Haganah. She's a warrior, raised life, planted trees, painted fruit as if the road was her garden orphaned twice. Had birth from Palestine, whispered Yafa till final breath, never knew essence until she found emptiness, 48 ways to flee and she found Beirut bullet holes in buildings, reminder of home, but not home. Years later, Daughters sat on hills in the south dreaming of breaking water, never touched, thinks of their mother, that warrior, how battles still rage here and abroad, orchards flourished, propagandists called them barons, land expropriated for Europeans who called religion, ethnicity, not native, not from here, plant flags, call it home, rename cities and villages, wiping, cleaning, cleansing memory that this is not theirs. Passed away August 22, 2009, frail hands shook, lip trembled, didn't want to die, but suffered decades. She will speak Arabic, broken English, wounded words and murmurs, her eyes close, but every so often they blink brilliance, memories that cannot be erased, uprooted, or stolen. She has not forgotten. We have not forgotten. We will not forget. Veins like roots of olive trees, we will return. That is not a threat, not a wish, a hope, or a dream, but a promise.